0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hello, hey Here's Linda from The Washington Post. Washington
0: Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori, our Tony over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 22nd. Today, how Vladimir Putin influenced Trump on Ukraine, a 15,000-mile odyssey to the U.S., and the start of the World Series.
2: The impeachment inquiry is really tied very closely to this call that Trump has on July 25th with the leader of Ukraine, in which he really pressures him to dig for political dirt on Joe Biden. But you have to back up from that. And what this impeachment inquiry is largely about is sort of the events that feed into that final conversation, that final piece of evidence.
0: Greg Miller covers national security for The Post, and he's been digging into how and why President Trump pressured Ukraine to investigate his political rival.
2: And there were lots of really unnerving developments over the year that people inside the White House were becoming alarmed by.
1: Because our ambassador there was working for Hillary Clinton working for the Democrats and for George Soros.
2: Including the removal of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine with very little explanation. She got fired finally, but she was blocking it. Including Rudolph Giuliani, the president's lawyer, starting to go out on cable television shows and declare to the world. All I want the Ukrainian government to do is investigate. That he was gonna meddle in Ukrainian investigations and try to get the goods for his boss. And I guarantee you, Joe Biden will not get to election day without this being investigated. And peddling conspiracy theories. And then you have the suspension of important military aid that was going to Ukraine, was flowing to Ukraine, and suddenly it comes to a halt just shortly before Trump picks up that phone to call Zelensky. So there's all of these things that we are trying to understand now and piece together in a more comprehensive way.
0: And what do we know about why all those things were happening why president trump had such negative feelings toward ukraine
2: right so there's a couple things i would tick off one he seems to believe that ukraine had it in for him and that when evidence surfaced during the 2016 campaign that paul manafort trump's campaign chairman was was secretly pocketing millions and millions of dollars in hidden payments that this was an effort to embarrass and to hurt trump since then, he's sort of adopted more conspiratorial ideas about Ukraine, including that, that it was Ukraine and not Russia that was really meddling in the 2016 election all along. Nobody believes that, uh, except a very few people, including Trump and a, and a few people close to him. But one of the things we explore today and write about is that he's also, at the same time, coming under the influence of other world leaders. And always at the top of the list with Trump is Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. Russia has long-standing abusive relationship toward Ukraine. A lot of hostility there. Putin has done everything to undermine reform and the prospects for democracy in Ukraine. And he is in Trump's ear in their conversations, telling him basically what a terrible place it is, how corrupt it is, and how worthless it is. And Viktor Orbán is is less prominent to most people. But he is, you know, some people think of him as kind of a mini Putin. He's the prime minister of Hungary. He's the prime minister of Hungary. And and people around Trump have spent most of his presidency trying to keep Viktor Orban from coming to the White House. And then they failed earlier this year. And so you have President Trump having important conversations with Putin and Orban in a span of several days. And their place on the timeline here is important. They come almost immediately after this reformer politician, Zelensky, is elected in Ukraine. The West likes him, and initially it looks like Trump might like him. Their first call goes very well. But by the time he's inaugurated, Trump seems to have turned on him. Trump tells Vice President Pence, I don't want you going to his inauguration, and he sends second-tier officials to do this. He starts refusing to talk with Zelensky or meet with him and withholding meetings and contact and support. Well, what happens in that in that span of weeks? Two things that we know now are that he hears from Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban.
0: And how do we know that they've been sending this message to Trump?
2: Well, one reason we know that is because George Kent, a state, a very senior State Department official who was responsible for this region, responsible for Ukraine, testified before the impeachment inquiry in the House last week that he saw three things influencing Trump's mind about Ukraine. One is Rudy Giuliani, president's lawyer. The others were the conversations that President Trump had with the leaders of Russia and Hungary.
0: So if the concern here is that Putin and Orban are basically in the ear of the president trying to get him to help them undermine this reformist government in Ukraine— were there people in the White House in the president's administration who were concerned that, that President Trump is basically doing the bidding of the Russian president and the Hungarian prime minister?
2: Yes, for sure. So this, this is a huge fight inside the administration that we're only beginning to learn about now. Senior officials from the State Department and the White House tried for years to prevent Trump from having hungary's president at the white house because he's been ostracized by europe because of what he's done to democratic institutions there among other reasons they are trying to push trump in the opposite direction they want him to see zelensky the newly elected leader of ukraine as a potential partner against corruption as a new face in ukraine who could help bring that country closer to the west and basically, Putin and Orban are doing everything they can to, to stop that from happening.
0: And to what extent do you think that those voices of concern from within the administration were effective? Did they stop President Trump from behaving toward Ukraine in a way that was beneficial to Russia and Hungary?
2: No. I mean, they tried and they held that line for some time, right? It took two plus years for Viktor Orban to get a meeting at the White House with President Trump. That's partly because a lot of Trump's advisors were battling against that for much of his presidency. But a lot of the most powerful voices inside the administration against Russia and for the forces of democracy are gone now. The defense secretary, Jim Mattis, the former White House chief of staff, uh, John Kelly. And so in the absence of those voices, uh, the ability of people like Putin or Orban to influence Trump have been heightened. We have fewer people around him who are, who are countervailing voices, arguing against what the leaders of places like Russia are telling him.
0: And it's worth pointing out that this has been the case when it comes to other stuff too, right? That especially when it comes to Vladimir Putin, that there have been other issues where President Trump has basically listened to Putin or heard from Putin on something and then acted in accordance with what Putin wanted.
2: Well, let's start with 2016, right? I mean, so Trump to this day refuses to acknowledge that Russia interfered in the, in the election that he won. And he has repeatedly sided with Putin, who has denied that Russia did this. U.S. intelligence has put evidence on the table on top of evidence, and Trump dismisses it and sides with Putin. There have been other cases, too, like Russia's attempted assassination of defectors in the U.K. a year or more ago which, you know, all of Western Europe decided was a, a basically a Russian assassination attempt It didn't succeed. Trump was very skeptical of that and, again, kind of sided with Putin's point of view. You need to prove that he did this. You need to prove Russia did this in a way that was astonishing to a lot of our closest allies.
0: So as this impeachment inquiry continues, is your sense that we're going to hear more about specifically how Putin, Orban, and other foreign leaders might have influence the president when it comes to what he did on these potentially impeachable offenses?
2: Yeah, I think we're gonna learn, continue to learn a lot about the environment around Trump, how this happens. I think we're gonna learn a lot more this week. We have important new witnesses who are appearing before the committee, including today, Bill Taylor, who is sort of the acting ambassador in Ukraine. And he is super important because he is there in in Kiev and he is corresponding with other diplomats, and it's his expressions of deep concern that we read about in the text exchanges with the EU ambassador, Gordon Sondland, and the special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker. So we've already seen glimpses of Bill Taylor's real concern about what what they were doing and whether Trump was trying to make aid to Ukraine contingent on cooperating in political affairs. And then we have other State Department officials, including Phil Rieker, who was, you know, closely involved in the removal of the ambassador there and of this this whole process. It's important to remember the other thing we've learned through the impeachment inquiry so far is that there were a lot of people working directly with and for Donald Trump who saw troubling developments on Ukraine way back in the spring. I mean, there were people in the White House who were freaked out about this for a long time. And we are... We are still learning more about the extent of their concern and dismay.
0: Greg Miller is a national security correspondent for The Post. On Tuesday, acting ambassador to Ukraine William Taylor testified in that closed-door hearing on Capitol Hill. Taylor said that he was told the release of military aid to Ukraine had a stipulation. It was contingent on Ukrainian officials publicly declaring that they would investigate the Bidens and the 2016 election. That testimony directly contradicts the president, who has insisted that there was no quid pro
3: quo. So, in the first few days of the Trump administration, he had a phone call with the Prime Minister of Australia, and the transcript of that phone call was leaked to The Washington Post. In that phone call, Trump basically has a fit about the idea that the United States is going to accept 1,250 refugees from these very remote islands in the South Pacific, and these are people who had been detained on these islands by the Australian government.
0: Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post.
3: The vast majority of people have, I'm sure, never heard of these refugees. It's even among people who are expert on refugee politics. It's a somewhat obscure situation. But these were people who had tried to reach Australia by boat. They had ventured from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, and they had come thousands of miles. And in many cases, they traveled over the course of months And while they were in transit, while they were en route in in a lot of these cases, the Australian government, which had been accepting people's claims of asylum when they had landed in Australia by boat, stopped accepting those claims. Hmm. And rather than consider the merits of people's applications and say, either you're eligible for refugee status or you're not, they said, you are all going to these very remote islands, Nauru, which is a, a republic, and Manus, And these are islands that are so far from the Australian mainland that you would never be able to get to the mainland from from there.
0: So these people, they thought that by leaving their home country and taking a boat to Australia, they might be able to get asylum in Australia. But because the policy basically changed while they were en route, Australia was like, well, you can't be here. We're not sending you back to your home country. So we're just going to put you on a random island?
3: They were stuck in geopolitical limbo. These are islands that have effectively become detention centers. And so people were stuck on these islands with no work, no connection to their families, no prospect of ever settling somewhere. They were just stuck for years at a time.
0: And so how did the situation of these people get on the radar of President Trump to the point that he was talking about it with the Australian prime minister days into his new administration?
3: So this was a deal that was cut by the Obama administration. And it almost sounds like something out of a different world, but the policy of the Obama administration was to increase the number of refugees taken in by the United States. And so the United States was looking for places around the world where it could bring in refugees. At the time, this was 2016, within the refugee community, there was a lot of focus on Nauru and Manos as places where the conditions were particularly poor and where people had just absolutely no hope of moving on and actually getting asylum. So There were cases there of people sewing their lips shut in protest at the poor conditions on these islands. There were also suicides. Seriously? People were sewing their lips shut out of uh, desperation. Oh, my God. As a way to protest the conditions on these islands, just the absence of hope and the fact that people were going to be stuck there indefinitely. And so the Obama administration, which wanted to increase the number of refugees that it accepted, made a deal with the Australian government and said, we will take 1,250 of your refugees off of these islands if you will in turn take refugees from other parts of the world.
0: So then ultimately what happened?
3: So Trump put up this really intense protest. He, He talked at length with the Australian prime minister saying, this is a terrible deal I don't want to do it, I don't want to take these people.
2: There's a lot of countries
1: taking advantage of us, really terribly taking advantage of us. We had one instance in Australia, I have a lot of respect for Australia, I love Australia as a country, but we had a problem where, uh, for whatever reason, President Obama said that they were going to take uh, probably well over a thousand uh, illegal immigrants who were in prisons, and they were going to bring them and take them into this country, and I just said, why? I just wanted to ask a question. I can ask that question of you. Why? 1,250. Could be 2,000. Could be more than that. And I said, why? Why are we doing this? What's the purpose? So we'll see what happens.
3: But lo and behold, the United States took these people. Ultimately, Australia put so much pressure on the U.S. saying this is an important deal for our bilateral relationship. A deal is a deal. You have to continue with it. And so against... Trump's wishes, this deal carried on.
0: And so you met two of those people who came here.
3: So I met a, I met a number of those people, and I spent a lot of time in Texas with two gentlemen who were in their early 20s, uh, Ali Atai and Ali Hazar.
1: When we got to LA, that was the most shocking since our own life. Yeah, can imagine. imagine. Important. Yeah.
3: Well, and they're known by their friends as the Ali's. These are two men who they have been almost inseparable since they landed. They didn't know each other. They both come from Afghanistan. They both come from Western Kabul. They're both members of the Hazara group, which is a persecuted ethnic minority in Afghanistan. But they met for the first time on Christmas Island, which is part of Australia, and it's where they had landed after taking a boat for days. When they landed in Christmas Island, that's when they were told, you're going to this remote island, Nauru.
1: Yeah, so that was a very bad time. I mean, it was kind of terrifying for us when we actually landed in Nauru. Yeah. Because we were just 16, Mm -hmm. yeah, 16 years old, and... We were thinking of going to Australia at the time, mm. but they moved, they transferred to Nauru.
3: Mm. And they spent years there together. And when the U.S. started taking people from Nauru, they both applied to, to come here.
1: So they said, okay, there's a chance the U.S. will come, step in and say, okay, I'm going to take some of the refugees. Mm. So, okay, we were kind of like surprised and said, the U.S. are not going to do that. No offense mm. but so but it actually happened so they said if you guys wanna if you're interested to go to us just sign up and so we signed up and they came and they saw interviewing people it was kind of getting real mm. and then Donald Trump came in mm. so it was kind of scary to be honest either we're gonna be the luckiest person <laughs> to get out mm. or the unluckiest person to have everything done and sit with and live in the room. Mm. Mm.
3: They came here together a year and a half ago, and they, along with several other Afghans, they've been sharing an apartment in the suburbs of Western Dallas uh, for the last last year and a half.
0: When you talk to them, did they talk about what it was like being on this island for years, not seeing any path toward like finding a permanent home anywhere?
3: they say it was the worst experience of their lives i mean they they fled a country where it had been at war for their entire lives they left afghanistan as as children they were both in their teens when they they left and their country was at war they were in uh, a, a place where there was extreme poverty but they had encountered nothing as bad as what they saw on Nauru. They both said that was the worst experience of their lives.
1: Mm. Most people gave up. They commit suicide. We know people who actually commit suicide are friends. They, they had stitches on their lips. Yeah. Mm.
3: Mm. People what they they saw their lips closed? Oh yeah, those yes. eyes like protesting yeah. showing
1: that please take us out of here. Mm.
3: For them it's almost yes, they they, they really are still wrapping their mind around the idea that they set off to go to Australia and now they're living in Texas. It's an odyssey that they've been on for for years now and it's unbelievably unlikely. But they say Texas has welcomed us. Nowhere else would welcome us but Texas has.
0: What do you think this story says about the larger issue of refugees in the U.S.?
3: So through multiple administrations, Democratic and Republican, Reagan, the Bushes, Clinton, Obama. The United States has always been the world leader in terms of refugee admissions. And Trump recently cut the number down to 18,000 from a target of 110,000 in the last year of the Obama administration. So a massive cut. And for people who were engaged in bringing refugees to the United States and helping them to settle here. They say that this does real damage to the U.S., to its standing overseas, to how people regard the United States internationally, and also does damage to communities that actually have become accustomed to welcoming refugees and making them feel part of the community and also benefiting from what they bring as workers and as contributors to the economy, as entrepreneurs. In Dallas, actually, there's a really thriving community of volunteers who are involved in welcoming these refugees and and really say the the refugees who come are an asset to the community, not, not a liability.
0: Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. So tonight is the first game of the World Series. And what's pretty cool about this World Series is that one of the teams that's playing is the Washington Nationals. This is the first time that they are ever going to the World Series, like ever. Actually up until this point, they were one of only two teams that had ever not gone to the World Series. So it's a huge deal. And last week, when the Nationals won in the game that sent them to the World Series, I was actually in an Uber with an Uber driver who was very excited about this win. And this thing, the first off, pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so early. And I just wanted to share what that sounded like. For no other reason than it's delightful And because it gives a tiny little window into what it's like to really love a baseball team. We're going to crush them today. We're going to crush them. Fifteen. You wait. Mom, this is unbelievable. They are going to the World Series now. Four games left. Uh Everybody's scoring. Why are they playing so badly? Mom, I don't know. Maybe you know when it is your time. Mm -hmm. Are you married? Uh, No, I'm not. Mom. when it's your time, you will see even a millionaire guy come from nowhere. (laughs) When it's your time, things happen like that. When it's your time, someone who will get blessed. The Washington Nationals are playing the Houston Astros tonight in Texas in the first game of the 2019 World Series. it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you're a daily Post Reports listener, take a minute to rate and review us on your podcast app. Reviews help other people find our show. And we also get a kick out of reading them. One listener just left a review a few days ago saying that Post Reports beats reading the newspaper if you don't have time. Happy to help you out, but I have to ask, what's a newspaper? I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.